Hi, welcome to the Transforming Spaces podcast by Gendered Intelligence. My name's Annie and my pronouns are she or they. And I'm Frankie and my pronouns are he, him. In this podcast, we'll be running through some of the talks delivered at the Transforming Spaces conference in 2018. Gendered Intelligence is a charity that works to increase understandings of gender diversity and help improve the lives of all trans people. Our vision is of a world where people are no longer constrained by narrow perceptions and expectations of gender, and where diverse gender expressions are visible and valued. If you're interested in supporting Gendered Intelligence or to find out more about our youth work, volunteer scheme, educational and professional services, please visit genderedintelligence.co.uk or follow us on our Twitter at genderintel. This week's episode is all about coming out of the archives. We're going to hear from people working in museums to change the ways that trans lives are represented and how our histories are written. Our speakers in this episode are Kate McSweeney, Head of Community Partnership at the British Museum, former Senior Audience Advocate at the Science Museum. Eleanor Lanyon, former Youth and Community Engagement Officer at the Wellcome Collection. Dr Jana Funke, Senior Lecturer at the University of Exeter. EJ Scott, who's the Curator of the Museum of Transology. And this panel is hosted by Jay Stewart, CEO of Gendered Intelligence. This is the session coming out of the archive. Hand over to Kate, she needs to introduce yourself, is that okay? <laughs> Hi, my name is Kate and I'm a participation specialist and I work um, part-time at the British Museum and as a freelance consultant. But the project I'm going to talk about today is when um, I worked with GI at the Science Museum in London. Um, so, as I said, I'm a participation specialist and kind of my role is really to advocate for embracing ideas of disruption, reimagining and reframing how and why museums should collaborate with non-traditional museum partners, therefore not other museum people, not historians, uh, not scientists, not academics. And this is about exploring, researching, displaying, and communicating the collections. So the motivations for this participatory practice are numerous, but comes really from concerns for greater inclusion, representation, um, diversity, social justice, and a broader understanding of what knowledge is and who has the right to have it, to talk about it, to communicate it. So in parallel, members of the public have also been petitioning cultural institutions for collaborations, especially those who have been excluded, purposefully hidden, underrepresented, badly represented, and really thinking about how you can challenge those traditional models of representation or non-representation. So this isn't always easy for museums. Change isn't easy. And museums are conservative, slow to change. I work at the British Museum. It's almost 300 years old, and some things have changed, but a lot hasn't. But it's necessary. Right? Change is necessary if museums, cultural institutions want to stay relevant in 21st century um, society. And in the embracing of this disruption, dissensus and discomfort, there is opportunities for real impact. And for our partners, it's not always easy to work with us. They have to be brave to work with museums, because museums can be naive, overambitious, and sometimes completely ill-prepared. So, 
this talk is going to kind of focus on how um, GI and 17 of their youth group bravely worked with the Science Museum in London in 2013-2014. So a vintage project we're talking about, but still a good one to discuss. And this project looked at how to hack into, disrupt the museum's display development process, specifically to help readdress the problematic representation of gender, especially in the Who Am I gallery. So GI and the Science Museum worked together in 2012 on a really small project, and the youth group then felt that the portrayal of gender in the Who Am I gallery was particularly simplistic, binary, and incredibly problematic. For example, one of the display cases encourages visitors to consider how their biological sex and gender plays a part in their identity, yet frames this within the binary parameters of the question, boy or girl. Interactive exhibits also challenge visitors to think about the gender of their brain and their identity, yet again only offers a binary approach to choosing. So, not great. Staff from the Science Museum acknowledged this and thought, come on, let's partner with GI to try and disrupt this approach. So though a partnership initially kind of focused on a small temporary um, display at an event, the kind of the learning and research that emerged out of that project um, was huge and transcended the impact that both organizations had hoped for. So the Science Museum got to develop displays with particular uh, members of the public who had a personal stake in the collection. Those who wanted to subvert and create new knowledge about the collections, challenging and exploring the patriarchal heteronormative assumptions often ingrained in these Western scientific collections, particularly the medical and gender collections. And for GI, by working in collaboration with a large um, cultural organisation, to raise questions and conversations around the ways in which museums, particularly those that produce knowledge, posit particular values and norms around gender identity. So, these are some of the project ambitions. So, in 2013, over the summer, we put together a project idea when funding became available for both the Science Museum and GI to get access to some money to work together. The project had both tangible outputs, a display and an event, but also to kind of become consultants for the museum to really help the museum think about future collecting, narrative and research. So the display development happened over, I think around eight half day workshops with up to 17 young people, including a visit to the stores. This trip to the object stores turned to out to be the turning point in the project. <laughs> Everything was kind of going okay until then. So walking around the vast stores of the museum, objects that had been identified by the medical curators as being perhaps relevant to the display theme and to the young people, was quickly squashed. I will point out that we don't have, at the time, a gender-related collection, but the objects that were shown were things like Barbie dolls, toy cars, and coloured crayons used in experiments that monitored the gender behaviour of children. They were from mainly the 1950s and 60s. The young people were less than positive in their responses and incredibly disappointed about the lack of modern objects and the limited number of objects directly linked to non-normative ideas of gender and sexual identities. So, how could they create a display telling their stories if there wasn't objects there to do that? So, we decided to disrupt that, to say, this is supposed to be a project around using museum objects, but maybe let's not use those objects. So, both unrepresentative and unappealing, we began to think about an alternative display that would have a small but significant trans-specific collection borrowed and donated mainly from those young participants. 
the newly brought in objects and the stories they wanted to tell merge more succinctly to um, represent the identities and the politics of those young trans people. There are some of the objects. So the workshops also consist of a range of training and skills and sharing sessions which introduce the young people to museum development tools like content hierarchy, label writing, oral history production and object selection. These oral histories with older um, trans people about their experiences and ideas in relation to the medical world and the role of science in transgender heritage was crucial to contextualising these displays. Um, conducting the interviews themselves, the young participants were able to reflect on these stories and consider the cultural and medical changes over time for trans people. And edited versions of these oral histories were available um, in the gallery and on the GI website. So in addition to all of this um, kind of development work, sessions were led about reflecting and knowledge exchanges around how museums are talking about gender um, and how the group really wanted themselves and their heritage to be represented in the story of the museum. The workshops were co-facilitated between GI and the Science Museum. And this collaborative approach ensured that the activities ran smoothly and the project was aligned with GI's organisational procedures. So, collectively, these workshops sought to demonstrate a shift from seeing gender no longer as boy-girl, but moving towards being gender as something much more dynamic. They wanted to kind of communicate that everyone has their own experience of conforming or not conforming to societal expressions of expectation, expressions and expectations of gender. So they wanted to ask the visitors who came to the museum, what makes up your gender? And to think about what objects they use to express their gender identity. So working with an artist facilitator, they envisaged a closet full of everyday things, but important things that trans people use. The closet being a metaphor for LGBT people who come out and share something of themselves with the public world. This is the display, some of the objects, and the computer terminal that had um, the various um, interviews and some content. So, while the display was open for about seven or eight months, there was also an ambition to physically take over the museum space by creating a critical mass of uh, trans people at the museum. So we held an event in 2014 um, for LGBTQI History Month. So Gendered Intelligence heavily promoted um, the event and brought lots of new people to the museum and also commissioned Miss Kimberly to come and do a performance who brought her own um, fans, who many of them were also new to the museum. So we had critical mass. We had huge amounts of people. And unfortunately, it was at this event that some occurrences happened that really made us think about what we were doing at the museum. Some of the visitors experienced out-and-out transphobic behaviour and lots of others general ignorance. The visibility of trans and gender non-conforming visitors in large cultural organisations asked questions around the responsibility of the institution to ensure such visitors feel safe and free from discrimination. The consequences of this night led to an awareness that the museum can't just think about gender in its collections, but it needed to think about its organisation as a whole. So we then commissioned GI to lead some training and awareness with us. We learned the hard way. So I think perhaps just to kind of finish up, I think one of the most transformative outcomes for the museum, and I hope for the kind of participants who worked with us, was this idea of acquiring new objects that was led by those young people, those participants in choosing objects to go into the permanent collection. There had been pretty much no community-led collecting projects at the museum, and certainly none around the experience of gender. The objects donated were different and more modern in many ways to the objects that we had already. They were entrenched with rich, personalised histories, which were recorded and stored with the objects, as can be seen from one on this slide. 
So this object was donated by a young trans woman, and her donation was a chance to immortalise, as she said, in a national collection, a pivotal moment in her transition in the hope that those who access them in the future could hear her story, and thus have a greater understanding of what it means and what is involved in transition in 2014. This object, in truth, could have been acquired elsewhere, but what was most critical about these specific objects was the stories that were attached to them, a genuine and personal story that would allow future researchers and staff to access a far more meaningful interpretation of them. And it also meant that the stories and the objects and the experiences would be forever looked after at the museum. A national museum has a a specific remit to care for these objects forever. We are future-proofing the interpretation of trans identities and histories within the medical context for the future. And the participants thought about how when their initial um, exploration had been disappointing and infuriating at many times, they were now in a very small way beginning to change that collection <coughs> and by helping the museum to recognise the value of this kind of work with modern, contemporary audiences making those collections much more valid and representative of those who would like to use them. So, relationship building absolutely integral to this kind of work, where trust and respect is vital. This is especially so when collaborating with people whose identities are not widely understood in society, have been hidden, or where current representations are unproductive. Trans people participating in co-creation projects need respectful, safe partnership conditions. And partnering with organisations with those types of skills is integral. Museums can't wade in and do this kind of work on their own. I'm going to finish up then with some um, kind of positive quotes. So, this practice wasn't perfect. I could go on about the things that we learned all day. The museum was naive, you know, messed up in places, but we had a strong partner to help us through it, to coach, support and teach us as we went along. And it was a step in the right direction for the museum to start thinking about embedding a genuine sense of polyvocality, partnering with those whose experience is far greater from the muse than the museum, and reframing how it collects, narrates, and displays gender diversity in its collections, and how it thinks about gender diversity in its visitors and workforce too. And here are some of the impacts from um, a visitor, someone who had nothing to do with the project but encountered the display, one of the partners, and one of the museum curators. Thank you very much for your time. Um, hello, uh, my name is Elena. I'm the Youth and Community Engagement Officer at Welcome Collection. Um, can I have a show of hands for people who know what Welcome Collection is? Quite a few, but not all of you. Fantastic. So, um, according to our website, Welcome Collection is a free museum and library that aims to challenge how we all think and feel about health by creating opportunities for people to think deeply about the connections between science, medicine, life and art, uh, which luckily means we can pretty much crowbar anything into that. Uh, I'm here today to talk about Transvengers, um, which was a co-production project between Welcome Collection and Gendered Intelligence, uh, which was part of a year-long exhibition, events and project season exploring the history of sexology so that's the study of um, the history of how studying sex became science rather than just gossip and purient interest. The exhibition opened in uh, November 2014, 
So, Transvengers was a digital comic. I'm going to use bits of it to illustrate the talk, but the whole thing is available online on the very user-friendly URL at the bottom of the screen. (laughs) 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 This was a brilliant project. It's one of the best things that I've done while I've been at Work Collection, but there were a number of challenges. Uh, The first one being, that's our building, and it doesn't look particularly inviting or friendly or inclusive. So that was our number one priority. Creating a space that was comfortable, that felt safe for the group to explore ideas and be creative. Um, So we could do that in very practical ways by paying travel expenses, having food. Um, We used some of the the processes that gendered intelligence use all the time, like the pronoun circle, so that there was a, a sense of familiarity. And luckily we had accessible toilets already that um, people were free to use. Uh, And I was also very conscious of um, people, the young people having a space that, where they weren't on display, but at the same time they didn't feel like they were being hidden away. Um, So those were all challenges for us. Yeah, the second challenge was, um, the exhibition wasn't there when we did the project. So we had to um, identify the key narratives and key individuals that were going to be in the exhibition before it existed uh, so that we could explore those stories and narratives with the the group before it came to fruition. So this slide shows part of the exhibition and Transvengers was there on a digital screen and you can see the arrow to where it is. Um, The uh, exhibition was divided into a number of sections and we went through each section and picked out the individuals that we thought were interesting and the stories we we thought would would be relevant uh, to the group. Um, So the sections were the library, the consulting room, the tent, the classroom, the box, the laboratory, the home and the archive. And Transvenger sat within the archive, which was a space where visitors could explore more. And it was also a space where we held small scale events and had interesting conversations. So it was, a, it was part of the visitor experience in the exhibition. What was really lovely was we managed to put it on the website as well. Um, so it has a life online, even though the exhibition has gone now. Uh, so challenge three. Uh, we're talking about sexologists who are, I was going to say mostly dead, but I think they're all dead. Um, they're grey and they're mostly male. And we could see that that might be a challenge to find the relevance um, and, and find a way of connecting with that past. Um, how do we make these unprepossessing, or in the case of Murray Stokes, downright scary-looking uh, sexologists interesting and relevant in the 21st century? This is how. So, the brilliant Jason Barker, who is unfortunately embroiled in the toilet discussion, um, suggested creating a webcomic. So each uh, member of the group created their own avatar, which gave them a level of anonymity and a freedom to be imaginative. And it also gave them the ability to travel through time. So what they, the um, transvengers did was they went back in, into the past, got to meet some of the sexologists whose ideas are still shaping the way that we think about sexuality and gender today. And 
give them a, a, a good talking to and uh, ask them some very deep and wonderful questions. <laughs> um, so once again, um, the group went to Blind House and had a look at some of the exhibits that were going to be in the show. And we did some research about what society was like when those sexologists were operating so that we could understand better their frame of reference as well as our 21st century frame of reference. And I've just got some nice pictures of the comic. So one of the things that I think is particularly powerful about the comic is that it gave young people the chance to share personal experiences or typical experiences which would help people understand some of the challenges they face. They weren't forced to, they were asked if they would like to, and there were several people who wanted to share stories. So the comic opens with the transgenders facing some of the challenges that they face in real life. And then the green smoke is the paradigm of heteronormativity. <laughs> and I thought this, this really made me think it was, a, it was a, a, a new approach to me as well. This idea that the, um, the heterosexual majority in the past and present are totally oblivious to this construction of identity because they're in the middle of it. And one of the things that I really appreciated about uh, the gendered intelligence group was their maturity and their, the amount that they had reflected on sex and, and gender and their identity. Um, so they had a really mature approach to it that I felt would help the rest of our visitors really understand all the ideas in the Institute of Sexology in a different way, yeah. as well as, obviously, this comic giving them a chance to have a platform to talk about their experiences and what's important to them. Uh, yes, so they decided they would go back in time and question the sexologists. And these included Mary Stokes and Sigmund Freud. Some of them were more helpful than others in, in coming up with ideas. Um, and I'm going to hand over Gianna because a really important part of the project was understanding the sexologist's point of view. Um, and Gianna helped us with that a great deal. Yes. Jay, I see the time. I'm just going to talk for three minutes or so. I can ask, uh, answer more questions later. So I am an academic and I work on the history of sexology. So my whole life is dedicated to these people that you see there. <laughs> and so um, this was a few years ago. So um, Jason, who was really the you know creative genius behind all of this, he said, Jana, instead of doing what academics usually do, which is to go in and meet a group of people and give a talk and hope that you know 5% of what you say might be somewhat relevant, <laughs> can we do something slightly <laughs> different? <laughs> and I said, okay, let's see what's the idea Jason said well, can you come in and work with the young people we did a whole range of things but one of the things we did was the young people interviewed me and asked me questions and I answered not as myself but actually as the different sexologists mm, so I answered mm. in character and kind of channeled the different sexologists which was kind of a new experience for me but so uh, really amazing and really taught me a lot about public engagement and how to work with people so a lot of the things that came out of this interrogation, which were quite critical, but also really interesting. Um, first of all, there were a few sexologists that I think, you know, it's like, this is going to be quite easy. So for instance, Havelock Ellis in the middle here, British sexologist or um, German Jewish Magnus Hirschfeld. They thought about trends in ways that I think are quite progressive and really resonate with the way we think today really providing kind of modern language to think and understand trans identity. 
And so they are kind of the heroes of this cartoon. As you can see here, Avalon Ellis is now trying to depathologize trans identity and saying it's more natural variation rather than anything pathological. Um, so that was there, and I think the cartoon really shows that there is this longer history around trans experience and trans identity, which for the young people was really important mm -hmm. to see that it's not a new phenomenon or a new trend or hype or whatever, but there is this deep history that is, you know, part of Welcome Collections, as you say, a very impressive building and a kind of, you know, powerful institution, and to make sure that that is represented and visitors see that. And the history of sexologists is a tiny part of trans history, but it's one important and part of it. But it was also important to include the other voices, like Mary Stokes, who you can see here is more interested in the future of the race and heterosexuality and how to reproduce well in her, her view, or Freud, who really couldn't understand trans identity because he conflated gender and sexuality in ways that he just couldn't understand trans in the way we do today. And so I was a little bit worried about the interviews there because I was like, how am I going to say these things and not offend people? But actually, the young people were brilliant in being very critical and interrogating the sexologists, me in that moment, but also actually trying to understand where they, they are coming from. You know, and I think the comic does that, I think with Freud particularly well, to show that actually Freud wasn't necessarily a horrible person, but there were things that he just couldn't understand because he was restrained by um, just the frameworks in which he was living and thinking. And I think the comic is really respectful and intelligent and insightful in critiquing the sexologists, but also trying to understand them on their own terms and showing that. And I also think the last point that Stokes and Freud are so crucial <coughs> because they might not have anything useful to say about trans identity, but they are the people who constructed heteronormativity in other ways. And as Eleanor said earlier, the comic is so powerful because it is about trans identity and trans history, but it's also about the ways in which, you know, the straightest, most cis person, whoever that might be, their lives too are framed by heteronormative ideals. And the sexologists were a group of people that shaped heteronormativity in really influential ways. And so I'm really proud of the comic, and I think the work Jason, the young people did is brilliant in achieving all of these different things as part of the exhibition. So, as well as being um, a really valuable learning experience for me and for Welcome, we try to embrace that opportunity to improve. So, um, Jay and Intelligence were invited to help on some staff training that we did for Fronts of House staff because we hoped that um, our visitors would perhaps include um, a greater diversity of experience than um, previously and we wanted to make sure that everyone felt welcome. We've also changed our bing bongs, technical term. Uh, so when we do public announcements, uh, we don't say ladies and gentlemen, we say dear visitors, um, which was a direct result of a conversation that the, that the visitor experience team had after the training. And we are planning, unfortunately we haven't got there yet, um, a gender neutral toilets as well. Um, so I think that, that hopefully the legacy will continue and we can continue our relationship. Um, and going on to bigger and better things. I'll shut up now. Thank you. There you go. Have you got a presentation? Hi guys. I'm EJ and I'm the curator of the Museum of Transology. We've been looking at models working within the scientific realm. Um, I'm interested in social history. So I'm, yes, an, a guilty academic, but I am a curator and a museum person. And it's this framework, we are building on the same kind of models because we have to prioritise the community talking for themselves. So I'd like to unpack how I've approached this process, but I want to start first by thinking a bit more broadly about museums. 
One of my favourite books by an author called Schubert is called The Curator's Egg. And in it, the author explains one of the greatest myths about the museum is that it's an oasis of calm, untouched by the storm of politics and history. Nothing could be further from the truth. And I agree. Museums are not neutral spaces. For a start, they're sites of privilege. They're places that are also full of gaps. Um, collections reflect their collectors. And in London, for example, the naturalist Hans Sloan was privileged enough to, in the start of the 18th century, collect 71,000 objects from across the empire that forms the basis of the British Museum now. He received a princely payment of £20,000 the, from the king to hand that collection over. That's a lot of money in the mid-1700s. So it's also commonly suggested that, you know, it's not just museums that are unbiased, but history itself. And you've probably heard the saying that history is written by the victorious, by the victors, right? So it's the coloniser, not the colonised the fully abled, no, not those with um, different abilities, men rather than women, hetero people rather than the queers. And of course, we know as well that museums, up until recently, have been inherently cis-normative. Um, so, and that's even when collections and the evidence and the living history, the social history, is there in front of them. So, for example, recently, the Gluck exhibition, no trans people were involved in consulting in the process of building that exhibition, no non-binary people were consulted. The publication that's come out since then with the exhibition is written by five authors. None of those authors are trans or non-binary either, and it's about to be released in America. So this is a very new publication that's about to go international by leading historians in this country that has no non-binary binary narrative whatsoever surrounding Gluck. We've got, uh, just this week, I was contacted by the senior curator at the Royal Physician Society. An exhibition has just opened, 500 Years of Women in Medicine. And they wanted to know how to best write the text panel about Dr. James Barry. So Dr. James Barry was a leading physician of his day. He died in 1865. Across, he lived as a man from his mid-teenage years, which is the time he would have been able to, because that was the time that he was in control of his life, um, and went on to become an internationally renowned doctor. We know that he was particularly renowned for working with underprivileged people, for example, lepers, women, sex workers, the poor. But he was also at the top of his game, leading the way in the treatment of hernias, and also we're led to believe, although I suggest this is probably a Western construct, that he performed the first caesarean. Dr. James Barry, as a medical person, would have been very aware of the procedures of post-mortem treatment of, of bodies, and so he left very specific instructions that his body was not to be examined after his death. Despite this, the woman that dressed him for his funeral sold his story to the press, and we have this wonderful thing that happens in the mainstream media. It was sensationalised after his death, and the she-doctor was born. 
only last year, I think it was, there was another publication that's just come out about Dr. James Barry being Britain's first female doctor. So he's just been included in this 500 Years of Women in Medicine exhibition that's recently opened up. I commend the, um, the curator that contacted me for coming directly to the community to tackle this issue, to find out whether or not there was space for this story in the exhibition. And they have rewritten the text panel and used the pronoun he. Um, that was the pronoun that he used for 50 years. So there is change, but there's still fundamental challenges, even within collections, you know, rewriting the history backwards. People put on this lens and say, we can't call them trans because we didn't have that word back then, but we can call them she, you know, or we can use the pronoun they because we just don't know, well, they is a modern construct as well. So I, I think there's a lot of challenges surrounding representation and really delving into transestry and dealing with it appropriately. Ultimately, museums create meaning. They teach a country who it is. They teach children about where they live and who they live with. They teach those of us that visit them about the world around us or a version of it. So to not see yourself on the walls of a museum is to be rendered historically homeless. It's to be told that your life is not worth remembering and that you are destined to be forgotten. And it was with this in mind, because the problem with pop-up exhibitions is that they pop down, it was with this in mind that I was deeply concerned that while I saw some interventive work being done that was pop-up, in this incredibly important time in the UK's social history, if not the Western world's social history, surrounding our understanding of gender and a huge shift in what it means. This is social history. This is not trans history, yeah, right? So in this incredible moment that is often referred to as the trans tipping point, despite that having been going on for 15 years now, no museums were collecting on a large scale multiple voices. That's fine. So, what do you do when you don't have a collection representing your community? You build one because collecting reflects the collectors, right? So, we had clear objectives to tackle the misunderstanding and marginalisation of trans people that result in profound levels of discrimination, violence and inequality, to reduce the ne neglect of trans history and narratives within the museum and heritage sector, to encourage trans people, their family and friends into the museum by increasing its relevance to their lives, to build sustainable partnerships and collaborations with LGBTIQ communities, to provide volunteer training to trans people diversifying the museum and heritage sector. These are objects that you wouldn't normally see in exhibitions, and this is where I have my social history lens on. They're everyday objects, so they're ordinary. Some of them are extraordinary in their ordinariness, but they're not things that are in going to ever be in the Silver Gallery in the V&A. They fill a gap in museum collections by injecting real trans people's voices. Not the media, not the medical system, not the critics, not the politicians, and they put us back into the history books. Before we, this moment in time slips past again, and it can only be reinterpreted through the lens of the media that spectacularizes us. So they bring an excluded audience, a neglected audience, an erased audience, an audience rendered historically homeless back into history.
because despite museums not collecting, trans people into their collections, trans people have done the only thing they can do to protect their own ancestry, they've collected themselves. And Jean Baudrillard writes, the whole miracle of collecting is that it is invariably oneself that one collects. And so it is that a tiny little stud earring says, I'm giving up my blue stud earring, it's very special to me as I wanted to buy with the trans pride, first ever one, which is a great deal for me. That tiny little earring that would have cost two pounds in Sully's, it's not even silver, and the back's not on it anymore, has been saved for six years in this person's drawer. The boxer shorts, striping monstrosity underlined. At the start of my transition, I asked my mum for boxes. She came back with this! <laughs> as lovely as she is, I couldn't wait to buy up the courage to buy something less tragic. <laughs> so it's not a story about transness, it's a story about growing up. And so it smashes that trans glass ceiling and makes it about a kid and his mum. Immersing myself in My Little Pony is how I manage dysphoria. Again, these everyday objects break down the sadness and the grief. That is felt by some members of the community. And if there has been some criticism of the exhibition, it's been from the community saying it's too negative. But the community wrote the exhibition, and this is a reflection of a point in time. And this is exactly why we have to collect, because as we get braver, bolder, more empowered, and our narratives change, so too will the collection. So you have to collect as you go along. And indeed, our policy was to collect everything that anyone wanted to give us. So there was no hierarchy of objects and no curatorial voice sitting over the top. I've been doing ballet since I was four years old. When I came out, I was worried that people wouldn't see me as well because of my love of ballet and point. But because I love it so much, I, I stopped. I refused to quit. Since coming out, I've been more confident in my dancing. And while they were worn long before my transition, they hold a lot of meaning to me. My ballet has made me the man that I am. So rejecting these narratives that trans people are here to reinforce gender stereotypes and are therefore anti-feminist. This kid's gone on a whole gender journey backwards and all around and really, really, really thought about who they are and what they love. The multiplicity of voices is why this collection is important. It's not, it's not enough to have one box of hormones and a curator say, some trans people take hormones. We don't need another one of those in our collection. These are so diverse in their experiences. Some of the people have found it good. Some people talk about it. One guy talks about this may be the man and the father that I am, so family. Another person talking about the problems they had with the health system, accessing it. There are so many avenues that these objects lead us down to reflect the diversity of the community itself. I'm running out of time. Yeah, yeah. okay. So what I'm going to do is just maybe finish with this. And it's that the objects is, no, this one, this one. It's this idea that we're going to be forgotten. And the last slide here shows a collection of my dear friend, Chrissy Bentley, who took her life last year. And Chrissy has donated her, her service dress and her ID from her military career. It says, this is the service dress hat I wore in training. It was the hat I trained in for a white one when I became RAF police, and it's a boy's hat. Obviously, I have no reason for a boy's cap anymore, but I actually prefer them over the look of the girls. So it's this memory that we're preserving 
about people by people, they're talking for themselves. And we don't have a permanent home for the Museum of Transology, but the collection isn't going to go away. It's not going to be returned. So it's about where we go with it from here, not about putting it back in boxes. It's got to continue growing because this is an area of museology that can't be put to bed. been listening to the transforming spaces podcast our next conference will be running on the 15th and 16th of november 2019 so make sure to save the date and we'll let you know when tickets are up i know i will <laughs> thanks for listening and if you want to continue this conversation or you have any points to add we'd be really interested to hear your views um, so do please tweet us at at gender and tell Ha 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 ha.